From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. As conspiracy theories and threats continue to swirl around the election system, the people who oversee voting in Colorado look at how it's working here and what's next, including possible changes to state law. Then, the investigations and criminal cases three and a half years after the death of Elijah McClain. And later, why are so many Black teachers leaving the classroom? It goes beyond representation. We also need to teach people who aren't of color how to deal with and build relationships and have empathy for situations that people of color come through and and find themselves being a part of the community. I think if we only say that diversity, equity, and inclusion can be attained through more people of color, I think we miss the boat and we miss the context. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The last couple of years have been tough for the officials who run Colorado's elections, enduring threats and hostility, pushing back against misinformation, and always wondering. So what's next? This week, with the 2022 election in the rearview, county clerks met for their winter conference. CPR's Benta Berklin was there. She joins us now to tell us about what happened. Welcome, Benta. Thanks for having me. What was the mood like at the conference? So there was a bit of a sigh of relief from a lot of them that election deniers lost contested races locally in Colorado and nationally. One speaker joked that the conferences have in many ways kind of become these therapy sessions after all that clerks have been through both personally and professionally since 2020. Also, clerks feel like they are making inroads with conspiracy theorists by being very transparent and open about how the election process works and trying to build trust. Lori Mitchell is the Chafee County clerk. She's a Democrat, she lives in Salida. She said the gathering is really a time to share best practices, support each other. And she said there were in fact more attendees at this conference than she's ever seen before. I wasn't feeling hopeful, but then after the election, I do feel like we've made progress, uh, and I didn't know that it was going to happen. I thought it would happen at some point, but maybe not this quickly. I do feel that, you know, the temperature has gone down a little bit. I do want to say for all of that, there was more security than past conferences. Homeland Security swept the venue. People had to have badges visible at all times. There was only one entrance to the venue. And as far as I know, it was not publicized online. And all of this reflects how since the 2020 election, clerks and their staff have faced threats and harassment. Now, you said they feel like they're making progress winning over election doubters. Tell me more about what they're doing to accomplish that. Lots of transparency measures. So inviting people to come into their offices, get their questions answered and see firsthand how the voting system works and show them all the safeguards that are in place. And even, and I reported on this previously, having election deniers serve as election judges. And that can help those individuals see how secure the voting system really is, looking at the paper ballots. 
Matt Crane is a Republican and he's a former clerk. Now he's the executive director of the County Clerks Association. And he did say it's been just a very long couple of years for clerks. I do think that more and more people are moving away from the stolen uh, election lie, from that ridiculous narrative. I think the more that we go, the more data that's out there, the more that they see, you know, we have these bad actors here in Colorado and elsewhere. Okay, we have the proof. We have the proof. We have it now. And every time they say it, they don't actually have it. And it takes very little work or research to say, okay, not only do you not have it, you have no idea what you're talking about. One thing that was sort of interesting, there are a lot of conspiracy theories about Colorado's election equipment and in, and in other states that it's secretly connected to the Internet and able to be hacked. That's not happening. The wireless ports on the machines have to be turned off, disabled. But Matt Crane said he thinks clerks would be open to removing that wireless hardware completely. Some already have in order to reassure people. But Crane says if state lawmakers want to move a bill forward, the state should pay for it. So we'll do this, but we're not going to foot the bill. Is that their position? Uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's everyone's position, but yes, that's what Matt Crane said. And, and cost is actually a big issue for clerks. One of their legislative priorities this year is to get the state to increase how much it contributes to the cost of elections. Since lawmakers in recent years have been passing new rules that the clerks do see as important steps and security measures, but also unfunded mandates. To go back to the 2022 election, nationally, the highest profile election denial candidates lost their races. In Colorado, many of those candidates were weeded out in the Republican primary. Are you getting the sense that clerks are beginning to believe this movement is losing steam? Yes and no. As one speaker put it, the political side of Stop the Steal didn't do well in November, but the grassroots movement is still extremely strong, very dug in and active. And so the clerks definitely are concerned that the disinformation and the distrust will ramp up at any moment. And by no means has it stopped, but there, there's moments that it can flare up even more. And that's why the clerks invited David Becker to give a presentation on disinformation. And Becker is a national election security expert. And he said there's still a lot of money to be made by spreading lies about election fraud. And those lies will still be spread, he believes, until bad actors are held accountable. The incentive structure right now is out of whack. People who have spread these lies are lining their pockets with small donations from people who are good Americans, who are sincerely disappointed in the outcome of the 2020 and perhaps the 2022 elections. They're not insurrectionists. They're not bad Americans because they voted for people other than the winner. But that disappointment is being fed into anger. It's dividing us as a nation. And there are people who are profiting off that anger. Now, that does bring to mind Colorado's highest profile case of a clerk going to um, joining the Stop the Steal movement. That, of course, is Tina Peters from Mesa County. Now, she's facing criminal charges for violating the security of the election equipment in her office. Were people talking about, about her at this conference? Tina Peters definitely hangs over everything at, at a conference like this. And when I approached people, they all had a lot to say about her and the situation. The Republican clerk in Weld County, Carly Coppice, helped train Tina Peters. And she said the allegations that Peters was involved in the security breach, compromising the equipment, and everything that Peters has said since to defend her own actions has been a major gut punch. And she said a betrayal. Now, Peters' trial is coming up. Can you give us an update on that? 
Yes, it's set for March 6th. She's facing 10 counts. And some of the clerks I talked to said they plan to go to Grand Junction to watch that trial in person. They said they really want to hear the full picture firsthand of everything that transpired. Thank you, Benta. Thanks so much. That's CPR's public affairs reporter, Benta Berkland. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. Nearly four years after 23-year-old Elijah McLean died after being violently arrested and administered the sedative ketamine, the Aurora police officers and paramedics involved are going to trial, or should I say trials. They all face felony charges, including negligent homicide and manslaughter. CPR's justice reporter Allison Sherry has been covering the case. Hi, Allison. Hi, Chandra. The five men charged in McLean's death three police officers, and two paramedics. Where do their cases stand now? Well, as you mentioned just now, you know, first the judge separated them all into three trials. That that happened. Um, the first officer on scene, Nathan Woodyard, uh, he also was the one who used a successful carotid hold on McLean. He will have his own trial. The paramedics who administered the ketamine, they'll have their own trial. And the two officers who arrived on the scene after Woodyard will have their own trial. Um, they all entered not guilty pleas last week at an arraignment, and they start their court proceedings in July. Why did their cases get broken out into separate trials like this? They were indicted together, and there was some effort by the first judge on this case to keep them all together in one trial, but I honestly didn't think that was going to be very likely given, one, both the autopsy and the fact that they all did very different things that night and they had different roles that evening. Now, what did the autopsy say? Well, that's a whole other story, Chandra. The Adams County coroner initially said that McLean's cause of death was undetermined. The coroner changed that, though, during the grand jury investigation to death by ketamine. So given the cops didn't administer the ketamine, the paramedics did, Mm. I figured they just couldn't all be tried together. You know, that said, in that updated autopsy, um, there is indication that the forensic pathologist who examined McLean believes that all of the actions together played both by law enforcement and the paramedics that night contributed to his death. So it's obviously going to be a bit of a rock fight between the defendants on who's exactly to blame for why he died. Let's talk about the charges that the former officers and paramedics face. Those came out of a grand jury investigation that was ordered by Governor Jared Polis and completed by Attorney General Phil Weiser. That's right. Um, the, the grand jury investigation was ordered by Weiser. Governor Jared Polis appointed Phil Weiser as a special prosecutor, but that's sort of semantics. Um, mm. All of the defendants face very similar charges, uh, criminally negligent homicide, manslaughter, second degree assault. The paramedics also face an additional charge of unlawfully administering ketamine without consent. Now you went through the order of cases at the top. First, the backup officers, then the paramedics, then the first officer on scene. Does that order say anything about the prosecution's strategy? 
You know, it's interesting. The prosecution wanted this order, this exact order to take place. The judge sort of said, I don't really care what you want. We're going to do this, how, you know, schedules fall down. And that's exactly how he ended up scheduling it. Mm. But in this way, I think it's more interesting a little to think about the defense rather than the prosecution in the order here. Because of what I said earlier about the autopsy, each person who goes up is going to say, hey, it wasn't my actions that night that caused McLean's death. It was the other guy. So if they get a conviction with the first two officers, the backup ones um, who arrive, they're going first. Will the paramedics then go and say, look, you have a conviction in this case. We were just on the scene doing our job. They asked us to give them ketamine. That's what we did. You know, you already have a conviction. You should let us go. And then Woodyard, the person who was very first to go hands-on with McLean, who did the carotid hold, he's going to go last. And, you know, in some ways, that's the greatest disadvantage for his defense, because most likely the other four defendants are going to say, look, he was the first on the scene. He did the successful carotid hold. He should be held the most responsible. And it's going to be hard for Woodyard's lawyers to say, see, it was the paramedic's fault because they would have already been tried. They may have already been exonerated. I think what his defense may say is, look, this was an example of very bad policing with a terrible outcome, but none of it was against the law. But, you know, obviously, I'm just speculating here. I'm not a Mm. lawyer. um, And we're going to know a lot more when these trials get started. Now, you've reported that McLean's mother, Shanine McLean, has been very involved with the process, and she's attended most of the court appearances involving her son's case. What did she think about the arraignment? Shanine's been very upset since the judge decided uh, to separate the three trials. She thinks they're all responsible collectively for his death and they should be tried together. Uh, There also has been, you know, I should note many, many, many delays in these proceedings. I've actually lost count of how many they've, you know, had us all go to court and then they get there and they ask for another continuance. We all go to court two months later. We get there. They all ask for another continuance. So Mm. I think that's been very upsetting to her, very, you know, understandably. Um, I talked to her last week ahead of the hearings, uh, and this is what she said. Yeah, they all should be tried together at the same time. Rodima had his back. Woodyard had his head and Roosevelt had his legs. And then at some point in time, the sergeant comes in and puts his feet on Elijah's foot on Elijah's leg. So Elijah's not kicking a lot. She also had trouble getting into the electronic platform to watch the proceedings from home. So I have a feeling she'll be at the trials in person just in case there's some sort of snafu like that. But I don't know if she's decided that yet. Now, is there anything else you'll be watching for as we get closer to this trial? Yeah, you know, I want to make a note about the jury pools because that's going to be kind of fascinating. They're going to have to find jurors who've heard little to nothing about this case until now. People who don't have any Mm. preconceived notions like you or I may have about this case at all. They don't they're not going to know who Elijah McClain was, that he was a musician, a massage therapist who volunteered at animal shelters. They aren't going to know about the police. They don't they're not going to know what he did. This is a obviously a very tall order. This case has received massive publicity, especially since George Floyd's murder. And as the trials progress, the pool of people is going to get smaller and smaller because Mm. there's going to be publicity around each of these cases. So it's going to be sort of interesting, again, how both sides handle the voir dire here. Allison, thank you. Thanks, Chandra. That was CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry, filling us in about developments in the case of Elijah McClain. He's the 23-year-old who died in August of 2019, days after being violently arrested by Aurora police officers and given what was later determined to be a lethal dose of the sedative ketamine. 
When we come back, why are black teachers leaving the classroom? One teacher shares his story as he faces a tough decision. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. When a vehicle needs so many repairs that it's a money pit on wheels, sometimes it's more trouble than it's worth. But it can still be worth a lot to Colorado Public Radio. Donate it. We'll get it picked up, sold at auction, you'll get a tax receipt, and the proceeds will help pay for the programs you love. It's simple and convenient to donate your car. Get started at CPR.org support. The number of black teachers leaving the profession is on the rise. Systemic is CPR's podcast about challenging the status quo and fighting institutional injustice. Season two focuses on equity in Colorado schools. Creator and host Joe Erickson talks with Kevin Adams, a teacher in Denver Public Schools. I have been what we call at our school a coordinating teacher who works with teacher candidates. And I I prefer to take in teacher candidates of color or from marginalized communities. Kevin Adams is reliving one of his biggest regrets. And I remember there is one brother dearly, deeply, who I loved. I watched him struggle. As he came in, he was, and he was young, he was 21. But I was patient with him because... I wanted him to be a teacher. The kids loved him. The kids absolutely adored him. So now I'm the old dude on the block, but they were like, Mr., we've never had a teacher like Mr. Adams is cool. It's you way cool. You know the dances. You know the music that we listen to. You cool. But so that educator, you know, he finished up his program. He got a job in Denver, but he left the classroom after three years. He left the classroom, couldn't put up with it. When I see stuff like that, I'm like, we lost one. You lost a really potentially great educator. Kevin felt powerless to stop another black educator from leaving the district. But Kevin's experience is a part of a bigger problem. There's a teacher shortage across the country that appears to be getting worse, especially for black teachers. According to the National Center for Education Statistics, there were more African-American teachers in 1999 than there are now. So what's going on? Kevin's school district, Denver Public Schools, made huge improvements over the years to make the classroom and teaching faculty more inclusive. Despite Denver Public Schools' efforts, it still remains that less than 5% of Denver Public School teachers are African-American, while over 14% of students are Black. As a Black teacher, how do you find your way in this environment? Why do black teachers find themselves excluded and left out in the cold and longing to leave the profession? When you first meet Kevin, he's a small-framed, gentle guy with a big smile. Then it comes at you, this huge bundle of energy Whether he's feeling passionate or disappointed by something, you're going to feel his energy 
it's impossible not to. Welcome back, everybody. We have made it to dun, 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 dun. season two, episode one of the Exit Interview. I'm Kevin Adams, and I'm joined by my host. Kevin started a podcast with his friend and 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year, Gerardo Munoz, six years ago. It's called Two Dope Teachers with a Mic. I just had, I, it was just not cool. You understand? Yep. You know, coming from South High School, we got what we wanted there. You know, and you're sitting here, you're like, okay. It started out as a way for friends to process microaggressions. It wasn't a coincidence that Kevin and Gerardo created the podcast after a stressful staff meeting. Gerardo remembers it well. There was the the staff meeting, and then there was the fugitive staff meeting. When members of marginalized and minoritized communities will find safe spaces to be honest with each other and to really talk about what they're really feeling in this. And so we had these conversations. In August 2021, Kevin and Gerardo only had one thing on their minds, the educators who didn't return to school. In one of their first episodes of the academic year, they put a spotlight on black educators. Gerardo explains why this is necessary. We are telling the stories of black teachers who have been forced out of their teaching positions, giving them space to reflect, to talk back to the people who push them out and to let us know what is happening in their lives right now. So on the first day of the 2021-2022 school year, Kevin was thinking about what pushed his missing colleagues away. He was pretty sure it wasn't the students. At 9.40 in the morning, he greets his new students in his sixth-grade social studies class at Denver Center for International Studies. The students don't know each other, but he gets them talking by giving them a wish. You guys said you'd wish for. Somebody said, wish one, get one million dollars. Wish two, get two more wishes. Wish three, donate four thousand dollars to every school in the world. Oh, I really like that one. I would wish for more time with Mr. Adams. Oh, you guys are so sweet. My second wish would be to have lots of money. My third wish is to fly. And the other. Fly. The reason I would donate for it at every school, because some schools are very rich. Yes, yeah, schools need money. I'd have every game, have every pop. Ooh, I like that. My dad loves pop. Ah, dad loves pop. If I got a million dollars, I can buy my dad any pop he wants. All right, folks, thank you for sharing your wishes. Though he's been teaching at his school for 10 years, the first day back is always special. There's a buzz around the school. Kevin always feels a little nervy on his first day of class. All of their energy, all of their excitement, and, and just just the wonder of it all, and the anxiety and the nervousness that eventually, you know, you work through, but as soon as they walk in and, and they're on their thing, and they have needs, they have questions, right? And you're trying to get to know them and, and learn all of their names and who they are. And 
you know, things about them and apply the strategies that your teachers have taught you in your teacher education program that don't really work that well. Like many teachers, he's learned to adapt his teaching style to his students. Kevin laughs at the education teaching program that encourages teachers to do icebreakers on their first day at school. It may work for some students, but for students of colour? Kids are like, I don't want to get up and talk about myself in front of these people on this first day. Are you crazy? You don't, you don't, you don't need to learn anything about me yet. Kevin's drawing from his own childhood experiences of going to school in a white suburb. He hated the attention of the first day. Being one of 11 black students in a school of 1,200, standing up in class telling folks who you are is the last thing you want to do. But teachers keep doing this because it's one of the first things you're taught as an educator. Breaking with tradition and training requires a little more thought. The only way to achieve this for teachers is to switch off cultural bias. That's when a person interprets the world around them through the norms of their culture. And when people from multiple cultures are in the classroom together, it can be hard to meet everyone through the lens of their own culture. But Denver Public Schools is hoping there's a way for teachers to address their culture bias. Tony Smith, African-American Deputy Superintendent of the school district, says he thinks that it can be achieved partly through representation, but mostly through proactive training. What I commonly hear in my role currently is that we need more teachers of color. Absolutely agree. Representation matters. And we also need to teach people who aren't of color how to deal with and build relationships and have empathy for situations that people of color come through and, and find themselves being a part of the community. I think if, if we only say that diversity, equity, and inclusion can be attained through more people of color, I think we missed the boat and we missed the context. Denver Public Schools has worked hard on inclusive practices in the classroom. They pioneered the Black Excellence Resolution, which values African-American students' experiences while pushing Black students to high achievement levels. And Denver Public Schools has a strong recruitment process that targets and recruits African-American teachers, but they don't stay. Kevin thinks diversity, equity, inclusion training is important, but says there's more to it. If you've been at predominantly white institutions through all your educational experience, you grew up in a white neighborhood, and then you come to teach in Denver, you can't help but start to understand there's something different. Kevin reflects on the differences he experienced teaching in a mostly white HGT, or highly gifted and talented program, versus more diverse traditional classrooms. Some teachers would let certain students slide, right? So white kids, and I had seen it in the HGT program, things that were allowed. In the HGT program, I can get up and walk around the room and move with freedom, making my own decisions. In the traditional classroom, I need permission. Raise your hand. 
we can't let these kids, we can't let them raise their voices, right? Because, you know, you have black girls that get really passionate, right? Well, there's a reason why they're passionate. That means that's showing that they're into it, right? And I don't think people, it goes back to that bias training. Um, I think that's important. But if you're never exposed, if you don't know black culture, if you don't know what black joy looks like, then you will mistake. It's what happens all the time. I'm going to express myself a certain way. Kevin wonders if Denver Public Schools is placing too much attention on training. Instead, he feels the school should prioritize more teachers of color in the classroom. For a long time, just I was isolated, right? And you start to uh, normalize it. And you're like, oh, well, maybe this is the way it is. And think about the systematic reasons why there aren't black educators. Why are there not other brothers like me? Why do I not see us? And the kids tell you, mister, you're different. I'm different. Mister, you're different. I've never had a teacher like you. What do you mean? You know, black teacher. You're just different. That was Kevin Adams, a social studies teacher in the Denver Public School System, speaking with Joe Erickson, host of Systemic, CPR's podcast about challenging institutional injustice. When we come back, the destructive impact of microaggressions. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's rare for a classical musician to become a household name, but in the 1970s, that was the case for Denver-born violinist Eugene Fodor. Known for his stunning talent, rock star good looks, and winning an international music competition in Moscow during the Cold War, Fodor charmed audiences from stages around the world and on NBC's Tonight Show. He was 10 when he made his solo debut at the Denver Symphony Orchestra, and Fodor had a special lifelong connection with horses, thanks to growing up on a ranch near Morrison. He could play his fiddle standing on the back of his horse, which met him at the Denver airport when Fodor came home from his triumph in Moscow, and he especially appreciated a good horsehair bow, which he described to Johnny Carson in 1977. It comes from the tail of white horses. The tail of white horses. Well, that's close. Preferably from a colder climate. In other words, a cold horse is what we're reading. With a warm tail. With a warm tail. (laughs) A Colorado postcard from CPR, supported in part by Coble & Company. There is a teacher shortage nationwide, including here in Colorado, especially among black teachers. Kevin Adams has taught for 17 years, and he says he has seen co-workers leave the profession, and he says he's also considered doing so himself. He's sharing his story with Joe Erickson, host of Systemic, CPR's podcast about institutional injustice and the people who challenge the status quo. Being alone is only part of the problem for teachers of colour. The other part is something a little harder to put a finger on. Microaggressions. Microaggressions are more than just thinly veiled, subtle and sometimes unintentional remarks and behaviour. Instead, they're the kind of remarks, questions or actions that targets and devalues specific cultures, genders, and communities. You've already heard Kevin talk about microaggressions towards black girls sent to detention for being too loud, or peers 
who questioned Kevin's teaching processes. These are just two of many incidents. When you experience it once or twice, microaggressions may seem inconsequential, but over a course of a month or year, they exact a terrible toll on a teacher's psychological well-being. When they happen every day, well, they start to wear black teachers down. Kevin is no exception. He's 17 years into his career and getting tired. By November, Kevin puts on a brave face as he's fully immersed in a class he's never taught before. AP World History. The pressure is on. Kevin spent the summer preparing for this class and he enjoys the challenge of introducing students to world rather than US history. So it was the first time they had really looked at and in an AP World History class and the kids are really learning to do the work of a historian. Uh, so they are really covering, let's see, from about 800 all the way up to the present. So about 1,200 years worth of history. So it's tons of history, lots of reading. Um, a lot of the kids I had, it was their very first time, you know, and I have one student in particular, Abby, as I think about it, she was really, you know, nervous. She said, Mr. Every day she's like, Mr. I shouldn't be in this class. I can't do this. She's like, I don't know how I ended up here. When he heard this, Kevin went back to his lesson plan and books to see what he could do to make it more accessible and relevant to his students' lives. There was definitely a lot of anxiety, a lot of nights where I tried to craft lessons to get them just right. You know, trying to balance the rigor with also making sure that my kids, you know, eyes didn't boil over, that they didn't get overfed information, right? Because when you're 1,200 years worth of history, there was a lot. There was a lot. But it was a lot of fun. And, and I, I watched my students grow. Just before the Christmas break is always a stressful time for teachers. Kevin stays up late to grade papers. He has to grade everyone before the holiday, but there's a lot of distraction. Usually there's like a ugly sweater, holiday sweater type of contest. So you see kids and adults walking around with these great uh, ugly sweaters and the kids love to have potlucks. And um, if you've never been to a potluck planned by middle schoolers or high schoolers, you're missing out. They are very good at chips, candies, cookies, sodas. I feel like my life ramps up because like, I usually rush to get all of the grading done, finish up all of that stuff in finals week. As Kevin returns to school from the Christmas break, he watches hundreds of kids stroll into the building with their hoodies up. As he follows the sea of hoodies, he thinks how much attitudes have changed. I remember it might have been my second year 
We banned hoodies. <laughs> we, as a school, because teachers didn't like that kids would put their hoodies up. Uh, we see kids fast forward to 2022 and these kids walking around with hoodies in the middle of a 100 degree day. I don't know what that is about. I have questions. So I'm going to let that slide. I'm going to let that slide. But we, we banned hoodies. And I remember saying, I was like, what are we doing? I was like, you know why they do that? They don't like their haircut. They're putting it up because they got a haircut. It didn't go the way they want. They don't want to get fresh cut check, have their friends slapping them upside the head, right? Or if you have a good haircut or you haven't gotten your haircut, either way, you're putting your hoodie up, right? You, 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 there's a reason why they're doing it. And people would make these, oh, the kids don't want to be seen or it's gang related or, you know, jumping to all these conclusions. Kevin has learned a thing or two over the years on how to address colleagues' harmful stereotypes. Today, he wouldn't have a problem calling in this issue. This is a new term that many black folks are adopting. Call-outs can be important ways to speak truth to power and call racist people to account in a public space. But many folks are using the concept of calling in, which seeks to refocus challenges to racism by talking to the person privately and aiming for change rather than shame. But at the time when the school banned hoodies, as a new teacher, Kevin didn't know how to talk to his colleagues about racial stereotypes. When I came in, I came into a building of veteran teachers, people who had been there for a long time, right? And so, so you just listen. You just listen and you try to think. And, and again, me not jumping to a conclusion that, oh, this is clearly racially motivated. But I think what it comes down to a lot of times is ignorance. It's a fact that people are just ignorant of another culture and the way people approach things, right? And I, I remember certain people would talk about certain kids. And my parents go to church right down the street at Shorter AME Church. And I'd see some of my kids over there, right? At church, I'd be like, well, if you saw this kid at church and they're helping pass stuff out, you know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, dressed up, you know, handle it. I'm like, get to know them get to know the kids, right? People need to experience. They need to get out. Go to the Black Arts Festival. Start to see who we are. See us where we are. And we'll go to Black Church. Go. You think they've stepped into Black Church? Do you think a single one of these white educators has stepped into Black Church? Now, when Kevin's confronted with a racial situation... He likes to address the matter by calling in rather than calling out. I think that's way more effective. It's February, and on a chilly day, the school is preparing students for SAT tests. Kevin was approached by a white English language arts teacher for advice on the N-word in books. I'm like, I don't want to be the Black Whisperer today. Can I just come in like y'all do and just do and just go about my business? And I'll tell you, I love my colleagues, but there are times where it's like, oh, you're not sure how to use the N-word in this book. 
You're the English teacher. Y'all didn't talk about this. There's never a date. What do you do when the word the N word comes up? Go ask a black guy. <laughs> Kevin feels that he can't be everything to his students and educate white colleagues on cultural issues. It's too much. It's one of the reasons why black teachers struggle in the profession. There's a buzz of excitement around the school. It's only two weeks before spring break. While the students can't wait, it's crunch time for teachers. They have to prepare for end of semester projects. As a teacher, you can do so much for your students that it's easy to burn out. And when equity is a priority among all the other things teachers need to manage, that's even more to juggle. There are times when Kevin reaches his limit and students are wanting more. To me, when I think of equity, right, it's that all of my students get what they need. All of my students get what they individually, each one of them needs. And sometimes their needs are gonna look different, right? I need space to stand up. I need to be able to talk. I need to be able to talk. That's who I am. I'm a talker. I'm gonna talk. I'm gonna talk. I need to be able to draw. I might need to look at my phone every once in a while to check and see because I'm going through a lot of anxiety right now. And this is the one thing that actually helps me calm down, right? I need space. I, we talk about it. I, and, and that was the beauty of the pandemic. It, it, gave us the freedom to try different things because people finally said oh wait these kids they have emotions they have feelings they're going through a real thing because we were going through it too right and so it was like okay maybe today we don't have a lesson we just talk the other part if I, as I say it giving every kid what they need at that time what if it's something that I didn't want, right? And I have needs too. We talk about this in my classroom. This is what my needs are. What are your needs, right? This is what we're trying to do. How can we come to a decision and use your voice? His honesty to admit he's not perfect and express his frustrations makes Kevin popular with his students and teachers of color. But in his podcast, his honesty has received mixed reactions from administrators. Wait, administrators don't like us? They talking trash about us? No, um, you know what? Here's the thing. We've been blessed. Our administrators that we've had, and I've and I've gone through principal change at my school, they've appreciated us. My current principal listens to the podcast, has actually raised episodes to say you should listen to this it's a really important episode if you want to understand this issue right and so i appreciate that our other principal uh Teresa corkadel she would let us record in her office kevin and his co-host harado are using their podcast as an agent of change one regular series they do is called the exit interview Asia Lyons co-hosts that series. In 2018, 
I left teaching. I was teaching in Cherry Creek School District in Colorado in the Aurora area. And I was actually pushed out of teaching due to racism um, by my administrator. And when I left, I realized that I really wanted to tell the superintendent what was going on with my experience and really make sure that he understood like this is I'm not a um, like a phenomena, right? That lots of black educators are getting pushed out and that he should at least if nothing else know one teacher's story. So I emailed him several times and finally got a response. And so I went to his office and we spoke for about an hour, maybe 90 minutes. And I had everything written down. So I knew what I was gonna say. And I basically explained to him the reason why I was leaving, the reason why so many educators that I knew, black educators that I knew were leaving. Um, and just kind of laid it all out there. And of course, you know, he gave me the, we are working towards excellence. We are working hard, you know, push play kind of thing, right? Yeah. And the expectation wasn't that I was going to like, it was going to be a revolutionary conversation and he's going to change his ways. It was just like, right. you need to know this so that you can't say you didn't know. Yeah. So when I walked out of there, you know, I just kept thinking like, damn, I wish more folks could tell their story. There are so many things that push you to the edge. And then you add the pressure of being judged, not as an individual, but as a race. Failure means that the school won't hire another black teacher. My whole first year was like, I can't, I can't get fired because like, what if, if I don't do well, they're going to hire another 26 year old black man to come in here and do this job. And on top of that pressure, there's microaggressions and being seen by white colleagues as the go-to expert on black people. Is it any wonder why black teachers are leaving the profession? The spring wore on. Kevin's focus was on his students' AP World History test. The students worked so hard throughout the year. But in the background, the thought of black teachers leaving the profession was never far from his mind. And near the end of the school year in May, the problem was getting national attention from the teachers' union. Groups like Denver Classroom Teachers Association held walk-in protests at schools in Denver. Students from North Heights today protested the firing of Tim Hernandez. At one point, he joined the march and led the crowd. The dismissal of teacher Tim Hernandez reverberated with black and brown teachers. Kevin felt Denver Public Schools lost another good teacher. There's an educator at a Denver high school, teacher of color, Latino uh, male, who was put on associate contract and who was beloved by the community and, and not retained. Many believe the school used Hernandez as cheap labor and they didn't want to pay him a full-time teacher's salary. They could find more teachers, mostly of color, to fill the cheaper associate position. I reached out to the principal of North High School, but got no response. 
Denver Public Schools did put out a response in an email saying associate positions don't qualify for automatic renewals. They wouldn't discuss the matter in depth because it's a personnel issue. Recruit, retain, respect. Recruit, retain, respect. The dismissal of Tim Hernandez triggered a huge response from students, parents and white teachers. How many of you have had a teacher in your life who was a teacher of color? That's not enough. We should all be able to raise our hands, even as teachers. As another school year ends, I wonder, why do black teachers return? They have to cope with all the stresses of being a teacher, the many unpaid hours of preparation, and the added problem of microaggressions. Kevin wonders too. And I think it always makes me question every, and you started, you're like, what keeps you in it? Like this year, what do I think about? I think about quitting. That's what we think about. You know, but it's the kids. It's the kids, and, and that'll always be the reason I think why black educators, if they do choose to stay, stay. Throughout Kevin's career, he's thought about giving it all up and doing something else, but he hasn't. His podcast is making waves. Administrators and principals are hearing hard truths about their schools. Maybe change is possible. So what would success look like for Kevin? To be honest, I don't know. I don't know what it looks like and feels like. I know what I'm working towards. I know what I, what I fight towards every day and the work where that would go. But I can only imagine what it looks like to be successful. Because like Rora said, we grew up in this oppressive system, right? I've grown up in a system and I see a system today that in some ways allows for way more expression but I, I don't know really what it looks like. I can imagine, I can imagine it's a place where people feel liberated, right? Where there's no fear about learning, where kids have options and freedom, right? And when we say freedom, I don't just mean like, are you going to do math? Are you going to do science? Like freedom of movement, right? The freedom that people, that we see in like the, the top tier white academies, We started the academic year with Kevin Adams having doubts about whether he wants to stay in teaching. We ended the year with the same doubts. If teachers like Kevin leave, how are we ever going to solve this problem? Joe Erickson is the creator, host, and producer of Systemic, CPR's podcast about dismantling systemic injustice and the people who step up to that challenge. Follow this and all the episodes wherever you get your podcast and at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.